stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome back to part three of the exponential series here. Welcome back to part three of from incremental to exponential with Ismael Amla. It's a fantastic episode. And it's part of the exponential series. Again, that's coming to an end as well. And these extra episodes, these broken up episodes that we're able to bring you is thanks to our sponsor Zai boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Don't forget, I have a copy of the book up for grabs. Just go to the innovationshow.io newsletter and sign up and you will be in the hat to win a copy of that. I'll be drawing from the hat this week as well after the publication of that episode. One last ask for you is please do leave a review for us on iTunes and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel to help us grow and get in front of both more ears and more eyes. For now, enjoy this magnificent episode with Ismail Amla. Over the past two decades, our guest has participated in dozens of innovation exercises with numerous companies. He has guided legacy energy giants in creating marketing opportunities by taking risks on innovation and better business models. He has helped retail chains and supermarkets defend themselves against Amazon and other online-only vendors. He has even helped the British government create a rapid response program for adopting innovation and technologies and to rethink the resource allocation on strategy and future requirements of the British Army. Unlike most innovation experts, he has also served as a senior executive overseeing many innovation pushes. At IBM, he lived through one of the most difficult innovation periods in recent history as Big Blue pivoted for a third time. In today's episode, he's going to share a playbook for building innovative, exponential companies. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back for part three of From Incremental to Exponential. Ismail Amla, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Aidan. Thanks for having me. I think I'm going to miss it when this ends. I'm going to jump straight into it, man. It's 6 p.m. on a Friday. We're both absolutely wrecked. <laughs> By the way, episode one and two, so well received, got so many great messages, as did you. So it's it's a great credit to you as well. So let's jump into a company that everybody loves, everybody has learned to love, but one that shows great innovation. And this is Patagonia, you say, they flipped the retail script for higher profits and ultimately fell into an entirely new revenue line because here their authenticity of purpose actually paid dividends, which is something that legacy organizations have a real hardship in getting their heads around. I don't know whether your readers or listeners would, would, would be listening to somebody like Simon Sinek who talks about the just cause, right? Uh, and, you know, originally he talked a lot about uh, the why, our why comes from the past, it's our origin and that's our story, it's who we are. But the just, cause, the just cause is our why projected into the future. And I think organisations that have managed to capture this just cause have really managed to mobilise clients and their own people to do amazing things. And Patagonia is one of those organisations that I think everybody loves because it stands for something. People know that it stands for ethics. But what happened in the story that when I read about it first time, it blew my mind because this is a, 
a, a commercial organization in 2011, and they decide that on Black Friday, they're going to do something different. Now, Black Friday is like Boxing Day sales over here. So if you're in the UK, I'm sure it's the same in Ireland, I think. But you have, you know, one sale period in the year that is disproportionate to any other day in the year. That's Black Friday in the USA. And rather than say, come buy our goods, what Patagonia did on Black Friday in 2011 is put an ad campaign out there, which had a, a picture of one of their jackets, beautiful jacket, and the message said, don't buy this jacket. Beautiful, right? So immediately everybody's thinking, what, what the heck? And of course, what they were saying is actually, don't buy our jacket, because everybody is going to be um, buying stuff. And in fact, what they said in the advert is, Patagonia wants to be in business for a long time and leave a world inhabitable for our kids. Now, who doesn't like that message? We want to do the opposite of what every other business is doing today. We ask you to buy less and reflect before you spend a dime on this jacket or anything else. And actually what they were pointing to, that anything else they were pointing to is another revenue stream that they were kicking off, which is something called Common Threads which was to encourage people to consider buying used clothing in order to minimize the environmental awareness of apparel making and so on. And actually, if you look forward, you know, jump forward a decade, 2021, this business is, is um, you know, the reuse and rescale of high-end clothing is actually a growing new revenue stream for Patagonia. It's a brilliant, brilliant business. I think it's a nice way to tee up the whole idea of new business models. And you tell us, Across public and private companies, KPMG calculated that as of 2018, the global platform economy had a value of $71.8 trillion, with 187 platforms being worth more than $1 billion, including Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. They're all platform businesses, and they're all companies collectively worth more than $3 trillion. The seventh and eighth are, are most valuables are Chinese platform businesses, Alibaba and Tencent. And then the ninth most valuable company is Visa, also a platform company. And this points towards, hey, platform company is where it's at. So pa Patagona showed us that having a purpose or a North Star can actually unlock new business models, but new revenue streams. But actually understanding business models is absolutely core to jumping from incremental to exponential. Yeah, and I think we talked about it in the last two. We, I think that innovation is going to come not necessarily from technology or use of technology, but innovation around business model. And I think the platforms play, which still so many entrepreneurs are not getting their heads around or so many existing businesses are not going to get their heads around, is really the place to be. Now, why? Three reasons we thought or we worked out as we talked to all these organizations, if you are a platform business, then you enjoy the network effect. What that means is that every additional user of a platform makes the platform more interesting to sellers and more valuable to both, to everybody who wants to use the system. So the higher the number of people, the users of products, of services, of information onto a platform, the more valuable it becomes and the harder it is to dislodge. You know, we've seen it, uh, you know, the smartphone is a platform, online game is a platform, Fortnite is a platform, uh, you know, LinkedIn is a platform. Uh, we've seen this happen across all sorts of different sorts of platforms, which really, uh, you know, means you have to be on the platform if you want to play with that group. 
So first thing is that, you know, it's the, the, the network effect of you getting on. The second thing is the platform, the platform business models expand rapidly by enabling other business to profit by them. So the platform themselves, of course, are going to be uh, profitable. That's the model. But they're going to enable other businesses to be, to, to be going that. So, so, for example, eBay can support a, somebody who sells five things a month. Or eBay can be a full-blown digital sales channel to Adidas. It's the same platform. So, you know, it's a, the distribution power of that platform is disproportionate, really. And then the third thing is around competition. You know, giant platform businesses attract customers by giving away a lot of the services from that platform in order to monetize some of the services from that platform. You know, Google and Facebook, it probably comes to mind straight away. But, you know, Apple is another example. Apple enables distribution of all sorts of free stuff, but it will monetize some of the stuff on that platform. So the three areas around network effect, distribution power, and sort of growth and competition means that if you want to innovate around innovative business models, then platforms should be at the focus of that, I think. And one of the things you say in the book, bringing it back to Patagonia, is Patagonia have actually utilized those platforms. For example, the great example you gave was actually set, setting up a shop, a Patagonia shop on eBay, and then removing the whole idea of making profit from it. So they're able to have peer-to-peer -peer sellers to really live their purpose. Exactly right, exactly right. They're, and they were a little bit ahead of their time, right? Don't forget, this is 2010, 2011. Um, Purpose-driven business, different innovation around business model, and then using somebody else's platform to get the network effect. And, and what about traditional businesses then, Ismail, as well? So you mentioned, for example, SpaceX or Dollar Shave Club, that they're not platform businesses, but they adopt marketplace characteristics. Yeah, and I think this, this idea around marketplace is another big fundamental change, if you like, happening. And, it, and, it, and it's happening because the technology and data is allowing anybody to connect to anybody. And when anybody connects to anybody, you've got a potential for a marketplace. And organizations are working out. So, for example, if you're a retailer you, and you want to own the experience with your client, you could say to your client, I know what you want to buy, in, I don't sell, but I can give you access to somebody who else who can give you what, what you need. And so you become a marketplace. You don't necessarily are going to be the organization that is going to provide everything. And I think we're seeing so much of that. You know, um, any, anything, you know, Dollar Shave uh, Club and SpaceX you talk about. But, you know, we, we've read about Tesla expanding beyond cars. You know, he's, he's got a, he wants to make entertainment offerings via its car systems. Uh, we've seen uh, General Electric dabbling in marketplaces and platform businesses. Even farm equipment manufacturers, John Deere, and uh, are talking about, you know, how do they use the platform they have or how do they use the technology they have to become a marketplace. So I think the, the, the other big things, um, and, and one, one lesson that we came across, which I thought was really profound, is that, when Amazon was building their platform, they, if you remember some of the, some of the write-up on this, they famously enforced that everybody and everything needed to have an application program interface. Everything needed to be an API. So all internal businesses could lock into that. And I guess this is the, the genius of Amazon Web Services, right? That um, all of the capacity, all of the technology could be available by everybody else. And I think a marketplace is just one version of that. 
And that suggests as well that that move with the API was not only let's build Lego bricks that are all, all compatible, but it also dictated how the culture should work as well. And we saw that very much so, for example, with Amazon Prime, the origins of Amazon Prime. This is a story not many people know that this came from within the company. And more importantly, for those people who have put something into the suggestion box and figured out that they were just shredded and used <laughs> and recycled those ideas. That's not the case in Amazon. In fact, Jeff Bezos reads those suggestion box when he was CEO on a regular basis. Yeah, and this is an incredible story, right? So if you imagine Amazon 2004 already playing a significant part in people's lives, and an engineer named Charlie Ward puts a uh, employee in, in the digital employee suggestion box, he puts in an idea where he said we should give free shipping to everybody over $25. Anybody who shops over $25, free shipping. Um, and, and of course, as a business case, th this looks nuts. But as a, as a way to induce people to shop more often and spend more money, you, everybody could see the potential around that. But would you really implement that suggestion? Well, you would if you're Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, right? So he regularly reads and apparently still reads or did read while he was at Amazon the employee improvement suggestion and found the idea compelling. So the story goes that, so this is um, 2004, November, uh, at his place in Seattle, he gets everybody together and says, we're going to do this. Everything over $25 is going to be free. And of course, what that means is that... Um, you know, you've got to look at, because the margins are so small, you've got to look at all the inefficiencies, not just around how you sell, but now how you distribute, how do you get the last mile to the person. Um, and and th there's even stories around, you know, February 2005, so November 2004, they said we're going to do this. February 2005, they said, um, uh, you know, logistics experts said um, Amazon would never cover the shipping bills. 2008, 100 million Prime users, 2008, 100 million Prime users. And by the way, by this time, it's $99 because people are hooked into this. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, and as we all know, I'm, I can certainly say when I go to buy stuff from Amazon, I never think about is it convenient or too expensive to ship because it's free. Absolutely. And, and you end up, you know, with that $25 before I became a Prime customer, you, you end up just putting in some other stuff to get yourself above the 24 because you're like, well, I'm paying it on shipping anyway. And it, it's almost like the impulse buy that you'd have buying the gum in the supermarket or something like that. It's the same same psychology. But it also, you know, the, the it raises a big challenge for many of us. And you'll have experienced this in your multiple roles, particularly working in legacy organizations. And, and I bring this up a lot in my workshops, Ismail, and you'll know this. It, Bookminster Fuller has a great quote that there's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. So it's very hard to see potential in such an idea like that. And and then it raised the question, well, how do you get buy-in? This was different. Jeff Bezos actually looked through the suggestion box. But in legacy companies, that's not the way things happen. And it's very difficult to articulate those ideas and articulate asynchronous growth to a CEO of an organization who's like, when will it be profitable? Give me an exact date. How much will it, will it earn us? And then that he's or she is reporting that to the board, and it's very difficult. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. And, and unfortunately, that point of view and that blocking of a culture still exists. I think the good thing is that there is enough of 
leadership thinking and uh, coaching from the board who are forcing the executive to rethink how they work, rethink how they address um, day-to-day suggestions and how they're going to change a culture. Because, I mean, my own experience, as I talk to large legacy organisations, as I work with large legacy organisations, even as, as we look at uh, government bodies, it is front of mind for board is around innovation, agility. So while I don't think it's permeated in every organisation, I think it's easier than 10 years ago when you and I were saying, what do you think about this idea? Uh, and you're right, the board do say it. But then you get Innovation Theatre that we talked about before. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're running a workshop. Let's do the workshop. And it's not real. And it drives true innovators absolutely crazy. But there's an interesting thing you said there about Amazon. So Amazon had to look at the inefficiencies in the in fulfillment, for example, or distribution in order to make the prime product work. But you say that's also somewhere somebody can look. You don't need to look at big disruptive business models. You can actually look, <laughs> as British Airways proved, actually a bit deeper into the dirt and actually make an organization more profitable. And this one is somewhere to start because you can start small like this, but it actually accumulates to be a big saving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is not necessarily about how do we create something brilliant and new and flashy. This could be how do we change the way we work or how do we fine tune how we work. And British Airways, as you say, is a great idea. They also run a digital suggestion box. They received the simple idea that saved nearly a million dollars a year in costs. And the simple idea was to descale or aggressively clean toilets, the toilet pipes on planes. And what happened was that this reduced the weight of the planes, reduced fuel, fuel costs, uh, and the descaling pipe was one of 200 ideas, that, uh, not, and of course not all of them are implemented. But British Air, Airways talk about cost savings of $20 million a year. $20 million a year by just somebody thinking, you know, we could get rid of some some weights out of these pipes. So you're right, you know, don't you don't necessarily need to look in the new to be innovative and get returns. I think British Airways is a great example of doing it the other way. <laughs> literally looking in the toilet <laughs> for for savings um but but it, but do you know what I, it made me think of ismail is that was a physical saving of time yet how many times are we so inefficient with meetings bringing senior executives to meetings running them poorly uh, having no agenda etc and that's intangible to many organizations so they don't measure it but actually fixing that can actually help to fix a culture Absolutely right. And, and I think we're beginning to see that. I don't know whether you saw Salesforce have days now where there's no calls and no meetings. Um, there, there's now, uh, and I think this is being forced upon us by the post-pandemic hybrid working environment where all options are open in terms of how we want to work. And I think what you talk about there, Aiden, which we've all experienced, this wasted around corporate bureaucracy is an opportunity for us to rethink work altogether. You know, if you know, people say you need to have meetings, well, if you can do it with an email, this is sort of, you know, alternative thinking, then why do you need the meeting, right? And let's, when we do get together, let's use it in a way where it's really, really useful. So I think all of that is up for debate. But as you say, as, you, as, as I'm sure all our listeners will know, we all have great examples, even in our business today, where it's not working. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that's the difficult thing. I was thinking about that, like the book is full of great suggestions and examples and, you know, scar tissue projects you've worked on. 
But the difficulty is that there's so many moving parts now. But that is also the opportunity because you can innovate at so many different parts of the organization as well. And so, so much of the feedback I often get from workshops is, if only we could start from zero rather than have legacy systems that we need to update or things we need to let go of, including legacy mindsets. And that brings us to the next point, which is your three-part manifesto for creating a corporate culture that fosters innovation. I'd love you to share this, Ismail. Yeah, and, and I think you, you, you put your, 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 your finger on it. It is about mindset, right? So it starts at the top of the organization with a growth mindset, and there's three things. First thing is that the mindset, I think we've got to consider that everybody is an innovator. And I'll go into some detail around how do you test whether you really think that or whether you're just, whether you're just saying it. Secondly, you've got to have a culture where the leadership are coaching and not managing. And thirdly, you've got to have a culture where you can empower and excite. And so, for example, if you think about, assume everybody is an innovator and everybody... Um, you go to go into most organizations and most leadership people will say, yeah, of course, we tell our people to innovate all the time. Everybody's an innovator. We have an open culture. And then you say, okay, you know, how do you actively give your employee the chance to innovate? Do you have formal innovation programs? Do you give them time off to innovate? 3M gives them, you know, a day a week or whatever it is to say, you go and have a think about other things. Uh, do you have a digital suggestion box or do you have a social network which allows you to do that? Um, do you have, if I was to say, what did you innovate that failed? Would you have a room you'd take me to and say, look, these are all the things that didn't quite work out, but we might come back to them. And how do you recognize and incentivize? So I think, you know, while it's a big idea, you can get very specific very quickly to test whether you're innovating. The second question, you know, around let's create an environment where you've got coaches and not, not bosses. If, if you consider that most of us are a lot of us are now knowledge workers, right? Um, even manufacturing and service workers know how to do their, their jobs. But if you tell them how to do their jobs, that is step number one to making them unhappy, right? What you want to tell them or ask them is what you need doing. And then you've got to give them some creativity. Um, you've got to give them learning, continuing edu education and coach rather than tell. And this is, this becomes really, really important. And then, again, what, what are the tests? So the tests are, because a lot of organizations will say, yeah, yeah, we've got an empowered organization. Okay, have you done any communication skills in the last two years that's different from the last 20 years for your organization? So you've not changed how you communicate with your employees. You know, do you have a meeting protocol where everybody is allowed to speak? Are they always the loudest? Is it always the blokes? Is it always the L? You know, there's all that. I mean, how, how, what training do you give to get managers to better motivate their employees rather than tell them you're getting paid for this, so why don't you do this? You know, because that's the mindset change as well. So there's lots of there's lots of things, you know, is, is the physical space designed to foster collaboration and, you know, lots of good examples around that as well. So coaches, not bosses. So and the first thing that we've, you know, we've got to create is an, in an environment where we're empowering and exciting. And that is an active act of leaders creating an environment where people feel included. They're aligned with a the purpose. They have a just cause. So they believe in this. And then there's very clear deliverables that everybody is going to be aligned and recognized on. Uh, and again, that's an active measure that I think leadership can take on. Beautiful. And we'll jump into a few of the tactics now in a moment. But uh uh, if if you wouldn't mind sharing, if you can share, I know we can anonymize this. So this is something we've all happened is Steve Jobs famously said, 
don't hire good people and tell them what to do. So don't bring them in. And But this happens with innovation work all the time. It's hire a head of innovation, tell them not to do these things or to do these things and start directing them. You're kind of going, why did you hire me in the first place? And to your point, people who work in change or innovation tend to be even more sensitive to being told what to do. It's it's terrible being told what to do by somebody who actually doesn't have a clue about what to do. And this happens all the time in this work. It does, it does. And, and you know, I've, I've, as I say, in my journey, I've failed more times than I've succeeded. And I've failed in landing in environments where I'm not empowered and I should have checked, you know, is this an environment where I can be successful? And I've failed in bringing people in and thinking the environment will be right for them knowing at the back of my mind that this is actually is not right for these people. And I think, that, you know, the sort of people, um, the, the sort of people who, who really drive this sort of change, a lot of us are very insecure, high performance. Uh, and, and, you know, a, a lot of the reinforcing activities around keep going, it's your idea, it's brilliant, it might fail, but we're going to, you know, course correct and keep going. I think we innovators and people who want to drive change need that space to be able to do that. And actually, that's the antithesis of give me predictability and give me quarterly results and give me, you know, less managed risk of everything that we're doing. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, people who address that balance agent, I think, are the people who succeed. Oh, man, you've just uh, opened some old wounds there and thrown some salt in them, man. <laughs> I did exactly the same thing, not doing my homework. And it was because I was so excited by the challenge that I became, I had selective listening and I just didn't want to hear the telltale signs. But anyway, we live and we learn. And and this raises a different thing, which is we had the brilliant Ian McGilchrist on the show before and he was talking about the brain on on the show. But he, he had a killer line, Ismail. He said that creativity is both a discipline and an undiscipline. And it made me think of what you said about innovation is it may seem counterintuitive. Yes, you need innovation frameworks, but it takes a lot of disorganization. And you give an example here of DeWalt, which is a subsidiary of Black and Decker, and they, how they run innovation. I'd love you to share a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, uh, DeWalt, uh, uh, incredible. I mean, you'd, you'd look at them and you'd think engineering, tools, you know, what are you going to get out of that in terms of learning? And what you get out of that is, is an incredible culture that they've developed. And they're already one of the most trusted brands in, in, in construction, right? And, and, but they had, uh, they developed a culture where they went to their customers to see what the customers were up to and how they were using their products. Point number one. Uh, point number two, they got quite innovative of how they could use the product. Point number three, they could make a dif difference back at base and say, we need to change the product. And so they, 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 you know, on one of the visits, they, uh, the research team noticed that the contractors loved using the cordless drills and the saws, right, um, that ran without batteries, but was still tethered to the extension cords when they were running the higher powered stuff because they, they didn't have strong enough, strong enough batteries. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, the, the innovation idea was what if you, we could have smaller, uh, larger, higher powered batteries so they could use the other tools in a in a way which was um, sort of cordless as well, uh, and essentially, you know, a lot. A long story short, they actually introduced a brand new product line called FlexVolt of adjustable power batteries. Twenty eighteen, that's a three hundred million dollar business. I mean, so you know, we, we're we're talking about 
huge conglomerate accepting ideas, executing on it, putting it out. Um, but of course, you know, a lot of the bureaucracy and cultural challenge that we've talked about, Aiden, clearly is something that, that they've addressed. Now, having said that, if you dig a little bit deeper under behind DeVault, actually what you find is that they are years into their innovation journey. They have, they invest in innovative startups. They run two accelerator programs. They have a partnership in Silicon Valley with Techstars. They have multiple ways and programs where they are partnering with other organizations just so that they are challenging what they do every day. And it's, by the way, it is all over the place. It's, it's, a, it's a global thing. They don't have innovation in one office in San Francisco sort of thing. So it's quite interesting. And, and they've got a chief technology officer. So here's a drill company with a chief technology officer thinking about how do, how do they go about changing stuff. Uh, it's a great story for people who want to look at how large enterprises reinvent themselves. And don't forget, if you do get a copy of the book, leave a review for Ismail on Amazon, positive review. And uh, don't forget, there's a copy up for grabs as well. Just sign up to our newsletter. But this raises so many things like many people who maybe on the start of their innovation journey, see the mountain that's ahead of them. And it's going to be full of troughs and dragons and volcanoes and everything. It's a, it's a treacherous journey. But it starts with new information like this. I mean, that's what drives me, Ismail, is sharing this information. That's what drives you in sharing the book, is helping other people not make the same mistakes as much as you can. And I say all that to say, okay, so you've got, you've got the idea, you want to change, you want to have a culture of innovation within your organization. What do you do next? And next you share some of the tactics that you can employ. So tactics of innovation driven companies involves things like innovation prizes, contests, design sprints, etc. Maybe you'll share some of your top lines on these. Yeah, I mean, and the, you know, everybody, a lot of people have heard of the Ansari Prize, right, the X Prize launched in 1996. So this isn't new, right, in terms of this thinking. And this was around how do you launch, uh, drive innovation in space, space launches and space flight? $10 million prize. So it got a lot of attention. Uh, it was by Peter Diamandis. Um, and, and, and of course, this was won by an entrepreneur with, with the backing from the Microsoft, uh, Microsoft guy, Paul Allen, in October 4th, 2004. So the, the competition ran for eight years. And of course, in doing that, what they did was they changed the airspace industry forever, right? They, 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 uh, despite the heavy, presence of Boeing and Ariane Space and so on. Here we have somebody winning a $10 million prize to, around innovation in space. But but it doesn't have to be huge and big and eight years and so on. I think I think the other example that I like is the duct tape, right? The duct tape example is great by the company Shortech. And they have a contest which says, look, uh, show off how you can use duct tape for an unexpected task. Uh, and there's been lots of different um, people who've tried this, but the one that really stuck is creating prom dresses just by duct tape. And um, it actually, I went just before the show, I was, I was doing a little bit of research on this. And if you go on Pinterest, there's actually a whole channel of people who've entered this competition and created dresses in duct tape. And you can imagine, you can imagine the branding, how, how people, how their employees feel good about themselves, how everybody gets engaged. And it cost them 10,000 college scholarship. That's the cost of all of that. They've got a channel on Pinterest as a result of doing that. Um, so, you know, I think, I think those are great ideas. I think the other thing is giving time, you know, a tactic is tell people you've got half a day every two months, every two weeks to go and think. Time to do that. And that's hard. It changes culture. 
it changes your relationship with your boss, it changes what you think your job is, all sorts of things. And, you know, 3M, we talked about being one of those organisations that have done something like that. Um, the other thing, a couple of things I would talk to in terms of tactics is, one is, you know, we've talked, we talk a lot about the design sprint, sprints and, you know, people say it, it was originating out of Google. But basically, if you take a team, a squad, five people, 10 people out of their office, put them in another office and say, you've got a week to create a product or you've got a week to create a product that goes to market. So day one, you define and map the problem. Day two, you sketch out your ideas for the solution. Day three, you vote on which is the best idea. Day four, you build a prototype. Day five, you go out in the market and test it with your clients. And the learning you get the, the, is, you know, in terms of cultural change, in terms of what the ideas might be, um, you know, all of those. And, and these, these, you know, the design spray ideas is now at the core of the McKinsey, Facebook, Dropbox, uh, you know, Dropbox, Medium, Airbnb, all those businesses. This is how they go about doing the, uh, the next set of, you know, next set of great ideas. Uh, and the next, the last thing I would do in terms of tactics is there is no shame in um, not necessarily stealing, but building on other people's ideas. Um, I think uh, Steve Jobs, and we talked about this in 1994, said uh, Picasso had a saying, good artists copy, great artists steal. Uh, and I think, you know, again, I'm not advocating or condoning you go out and steal other stuff. But, you know, um, if you think about uh, where amazing products have come from. So the iPod example uh, came from a British inventor, Kane Kramer. You know, it wasn't invented at Apple. iTunes was built on a technology purchased from SoundJam. Apple didn't invent iTunes. Uh, We know that iPhones frequently copy Samsung's mobile technology and vice versa. We know that uh, Zuckerberg built Facebook on our meta by taking pages from MySpace and Friendster. And, you know, it continues to do that. It tried to do that with WhatsApp, had to end up buying it and so on. So these are brilliant platform, brilliant technology companies who have not been ashamed about saying, hey, that's a great idea over there. Let me see if I can build on that. Yeah, I love that. And the other thing to say on that is that by looking at an adjacent industry, you can actually get great ideas. The great one I heard was Henry Ford. So Henry Ford got the idea of the assembly line from a meat factory. Uh, So that type of idea of what's adjacent that I can use for my organization or my product and bring it to new lives. But there's an interesting thing you said there, take a group of people and put them on a project. You give a brilliant example in the book, and it reminded me, I don't know if you've seen this, Ismail, and maybe your audience have seen it as well. There's a Netflix show called Inventing Anna, and it's about Anna Sorokin, the girl who scammed millions. And in that, there's a reporter, and the reporter engages a, a group of disgruntled ex or disgruntled journalists, and they say they're in Scriberia, right? These people who are just put out to pasture a little bit. And it reminded me of the magnificent story you share about Pixar and Incredibles too. Yeah, I mean, that again, you know, the, one of the fun things about the book and um, is you come across these stories which uh, 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 changes your perspectives on everything, right? And and here was around, and you know, what we were trying to look for was how do you identify and incentivize innovators? And if you were creating this small team which is coming together, um, you know, how do you make sure you've got enough disruption and enough thought going into that which is going to create big ideas? And great example comes from from Pixar. So, um, 
I, I think we'll all remember Incredibles and Incredibles 2, uh, the groundbreaking animation film from Pixar Studios. The film director wanted to make a movie that everybody in the studio told him that was technologically impossible. So what was the what was the thing that was impossible? The thing that was impossible, and it's these little things that sort of get my attention. The thing that was impossible was that you couldn't animate flowing hair. Now I don't have that problem, you still have that problem. But you couldn't animate flowing hair in a way that could look realistic. So computer graphic system at the time could not generate animation with hair that was lifelike. So the film director sought out em- employees who were actually not satisfied with their roles at Pixar. So think about it. He's saying, I want a team. I want a team of everybody who's unhappy. That's going to be my team. Uh, But not with the company itself, not with Pixar, but with the work they were doing. And then he took these people, he formed them into a band of black sheep, effectively. And he told them that they were empowered to break the rules and just solve the big problems, like the flowing hair, without consulting the old playbooks. Uh, and so by tapping into people wanting to do something better, by creating a new way of doing this, you know, they created cinema history, really. Um, and, and, you know, it started with bring me your unhappy people. Brilliant. Oh, it's, it's brilliant, man. And, and talk about giving people a purpose again, people who feel maybe stuck in their roles and releasing them and giving them a new lease of life. A magnificent story. So, Ismail, you... you have a brilliant chapter called From Dinosaurs to Eagles. And this is where you give case studies of organizations that were dinosaurs and became eagles and and had a new lease of life, just like those employees that were disgruntled. And one of them you worked on and you worked with was Sainsbury's, a magnificent resurgence, a magnificent transformation from a dinosaur to an eagle. Yeah, no, I mean, mean, when when you think about... um, businesses wanting to reinvent. I remember coming back from the USA in 2019 and all I could talk about was Amazon Go because it had just been launched on the West Coast. This idea of you walk in, take what you want, walk out. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is going to totally disrupt the retail sector just like they did in the book sector. And then I'm, I'm reading the Evening Standard and I read this place which says Sainsbury's opened their own version of Amazon Go in Holborn. I'm thinking this is, you know, I don't know, 150, 200 years old retail, British retail agency who are actually keeping up with the Amazons of this world. And fantastic, uh, fantastic thoughts in what they've done in terms of the innovation. Uh, and don't forget, Amazon, uh, Sainsbury's have Sainsbury's Bank. They have Sainsbury's Retail. They have uh, people from different sectors working in those organizations, bringing different ideas. But just the idea that they've got a retail and a banking operations cost collaborating here. It, you know, you, you start to get very different sort of answers. Uh, and what I what I found at Sainsbury's, and I'm still finding it, by the way, because we're still doing a lot of work with them, is the culture in that place is, is, is really a role model in terms of how you want to go about creating a challenging environment where you're pushing the edge in terms of what you've been doing for tens and, and fifties of years. And how you are meaning to, how you are keeping close, if not overtaking, some of, te- some of the technological advances of some of the, you know, the giants of the world. But it also then made me think, actually, if, if Sainsbury's can, and Walmart is another brilliant example of organizations actually competing with Amazon. Amazon have got their own challenges now, right? 
as in terms of their size, they've got a new leader, the culture is changing, um, of them having to do, reintroduce some of their old culture and new innovation. Uh, and I, I wonder, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how Amazon develops over the years as they get a new set of competition, which is technology-driven, but these giants reinventing themselves and a new leadership within Amazon. Ismail, I mentioned it. It's uh, almost 7 p.m. on a Friday, and I'm keeping you from your family, and you've been traveling as well. And it's just been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I feel like we've connected, which is great. And I'm sure we'll end up working together some st way in the future. But I have a final quote, and I don't want to finish with me with the final quote at the final call to action. I wanted to come from you. So how about I give that quote? Uh, and then I'll pass over to you to close today's show. But where can people find you? By the way, I've really enjoyed this. It's been a lot of fun. I've learned stuff. Um, I, I, hope, I hope the audience has as well. So LinkedIn, Ismail Amla, or Twitter, Ismail Amla. And I'll share this quote now and then over to you to close today's show. You say at the end of the book, the good news is that any company can become an innovation company by making the right changes, embracing the newer tactics, and most importantly, unleashing the power of its people to think more broadly, act more ambitiously, and dream more wildly. Legacy companies may have many advantages, and the ones that make that focus a cornerstone of their culture will have a leg up regardless of what they face. I absolutely love that line as the way you close the book. And I thought it was fitting to close this episode of incremental to exponential with that quote from me. And I want to thank you before you finish today's show, author of incremental to exponential Ismail Amla. Thank you for your time, support and energy in the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Aidan. And I'll finish with a quote from George Bernard Shaw. Um, which I love, which is a life spent making mistakes is not only more honorable, but more useful than a life spent doing nothing. Beautiful, beautiful, man. Let's leave it with that. Great to Take see care, you. Brother. Take care, brother. All the best. Take care. Bye -bye. Fantastic episode once again with Ismail Amla. It's a great pleasure to have had him on the show. I'm sure we'll have him on again in the future. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, before we leave today. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses of all sizes to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. And I'll see you next week for the final part of the Exponential series, this time with Guy Perlmutter. See you next week.